Hey, Wiki listeners, it's Rachel. And Victor, did you know I host the fantastic NYC Talent Show every Monday night at the Parkside Lounge in New York City? It's an off-off Broadway showcase where you can see New York's underground performance art up close. We've got weekly special guests like Colin Quinn, Janine Garofalo, Tone Bell, and lots more. Use the code WIKILISTEN for a special discount on tickets when you go to nyctalentshow.com. That's nyctalentshow.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Wikipedia page for Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Welcome to Wikilisten, the podcast where we read Wikipedia pages and provide commentary. I am Victor Vernado, KSN. And I'm Rachel Teichman, LMSW. And as a special guest today, we have Chachi Lopret from Breakfast with the Beatles. Hello. It's a pleasure, Victor and Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very much excited and looking forward to this experience. We are also excited about your insight on Maxwell Silverhammer. It's <laughs> a song the best that I Beatles song of all time. Oh. It, it is a song that I have never completely understood why it existed. So here we go. As did the other three Beatles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maxwell Silverhammer is a song by the English rock band The Beatles from their 1969 album Abbey Road. It was written by Paul McCartney and credited to the Lennon-McCartney Partnership. The song is about a student named Maxwell Edison who commits murders with a hammer with the dark lyrics disguised by an upbeat sound. McCartney described the song as symbolic of the downfalls of life, being my analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue and as it so often does. The song was initially rehearsed during the Get Back sessions in January 1969. During the recording of Abbey Road in July and August, the band devoted four recording sessions to completing the track. These sessions were an acrimonious time for the Beatles as McCartney pressured the group to work at length on the song. All three of his bandmates were vocal in their dislike of Maxwell's Silver Hammer. <laughs> in a 2008 interview, Ringo Starr remembered it as, quote, the worst session ever and, quote, the worst track we ever had to record. Ah, yes, the <laughs> beginning of the end of the Beatles. 
Was it the beginning of the end, Chachi? Uh, it was close. It was close. Background. While in Rishikesh, India in early 1968, McCartney began to write the first verse of the song. Having completed most of it by October that year, he intended for its inclusion on the album The Beatles, otherwise known as The White Album, but it was never properly recorded during those sessions due to time constraints. It was rehearsed again three months later in January 1969 at Twickingham Studios during the Get Back sessions, but would not be recorded for another six months. Now he was really persistent. He was, and there was probably over 100 takes of this track, which frustrated especially John Lennon. I'm seeing Paul in June, and I hope he performs this. You know, I've never seen him perform it. I'm seeing him in June in Boston as well, Rachel. Ah, cool. Oh, wow. I'm not seeing him. McCartney's wife, Linda, said that he had become interested in avant-garde theater and had immersed himself in the writings of the experimental French author Alfred Jarry. This influence is reflected in the story and tone of Maxwell Silverhammer and also explains how McCartney came across Jarry's word pataphysical, which occurs in the lyrics. In 1994, McCartney said that the song epitomizes the downfalls of life, being my analogy for when something goes... I'm doing a terrible accent. I don't care. My analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue, as it so often does, as I was beginning to find out at that time in my life, I wanted something symbolic of that. So to me, it was some fictitious character called Maxwell with a silver hammer. I don't know why it was silver. It just sounded better than Maxwell's hammer. Recording. (laughs) The Beatles began recording the song at EMI Studios, later Abbey Road Studios, in London on the 9th of July, 1969. John Lennon, who had been absent from recording sessions for the previous eight days after being injured in a car crash in Scotland, arrived to work on the song, accompanied by his wife Yoko Ono, who, more badly hurt in the accident than Lennon, lay on a large double bed in the studio. Sixteen takes of the rhythm track were made, followed by a series of guitar overdubs. The unused fifth take can be heard on Anthology 3. Over the following two days, the group overdubbed vocals, piano, Hammond organ, anvil, and guitar. The song was completed on the 6th of August when McCartney recorded a solo on a Moog synthesizer. I have two takes from this paragraph, which is, it's interesting that they included the fact that Yoko laid on a double bed in the studio, and also that they used an anvil to sample. That is correct. You know, they had at the time a roadie that was with them from the early days in Liverpool, and he was tasked with finding an anvil. He did immediately. That's Mal Evans. And he had the honors of hitting the anvil. That's awesome. The recording process subsequently drew unfavorable comments from Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Lennon said, I was ill after the accident when they did most of that track, and it really ground George and Ringo into the ground recording it, adding later, quote, I hate it, you know, because all I remember is the track. See, I have a better accent. Yeah, you're killing it. You do. (laughs) Thank you. Paul did everything to make it into a single, and it never was, and it never could have been, quote. I didn't realize that was part of the accent. I could have used it. 
In the recollection of engineer Jeff Emmerich, Lennon dismissed it as, quote, more of Paul's granny music, you see, end quote. Harrison recalled, quote, sometimes Paul would make us do those really fruity songs. I mean, my God, Maxwell Silverhammer was so fruity. <laughs> After a while, we did a good job on it. But when Paul got an idea on arrangement in his head, Star told Rolling Stone in 2008, quote, the worst session ever was Maxwell Silverhammer. It was the worst act, you see, we ever had to record. It went on for weeks. I thought it was mad. McCartney recalled, quote, the only arguments were about things like me spending three days on Maxwell Silverhammer. I remember George <laughs> saying, you've taken three days. It's only a song. Yeah, but I want to get it right. I've got some thoughts on this one, end quote. That was great. You doing Paul doing an impression of George. Yeah. Yes, uh, I, am, uh, I am the rich little of Beatle imitations. Thank you. I love that Maxwell Silverhammer caused so much controversy because all the quotes of them talking about it just sound crazy. Oh, they disliked some of those fruity Paul songs that ended up on his own records. And, you know, maybe we should have done a Paul is Dead episode. <laughs> Sounds kind of homophobic, to be honest. Like What, the fruity not, name? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I'm not sure how, because they're in England, so I'm not sure, like, exactly what it means. Or maybe it was, because it was also a time when people would say fruity. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't Fruity Pebbles, that's for sure. That's a cereal joke. Thank you. Wonderful cereal <laughs> joke. Our best so far in this entire show, the life of the show. <laughs> Aftermath. In a taped recording of a band meeting conducted in September 1969, Lennon raised the possibility of individual songwriting responsibilities being split equally between the three of them in the future. In this arrangement, each of the writers would contribute four songs to an album and Starr would have the opportunity to contribute two. <laughs> Beatles historian Mark Lewison comments on the exchange that proceeded between the three bandmates. Star was not present. Paul responds to the news that George now has equal standing as a composer with John and himself by muttering something mildly provocative. I thought until this album that George's songs weren't that good. I can see I can hear you and then I can do, say mm. back at you. You are getting better at this. <laughs> he says, which is a pretty double edged compliment since the earlier compositions he's implicitly disparaging include Taxman and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. They didn't like While My Guitar Gently Weeps? I thought they did. Uh, they certainly liked it better when Eric was brought in to do the solo. It, it, it calmed everybody down and their best behavior. Wow, I thought that song was universally loved, but not even within the Beatles was it universally loved. Well, I don't think it was that unloved. Paul was, I mean, George was scrutinized a lot back then, but nowadays it is beloved by all the Beatles, the surviving Beatles, I will say. The real crime here is them disliking Taxman because that's another incredible song. It is another incredible song, a song that George needed a little bit of help on, and he went to John's house and asked him to give him some pointers to help him finish the song. Wow. I love all your information. I wish you were here all the time. Thank you. <laughs> well, I guess all the time when we're reading Beatles things. Eh? Exactly. I'm not sure it's the same for electronics. Certainly not uh, hand gestures. <laughs> Wiki listeners, you can help support us by listening to this quick message. Thanks for listening to that message, everybody. There's a nettled rejoinder from George 
That's a matter of taste. All down the line, people have like, now it's gone. That's a matter of taste. All down the line, people have liked my songs. John reacts by telling Paul that nobody else in the group dug his Maxwell Silver Hammer and that it might be a good idea if he gave songs of that kind, which John suggests he probably didn't even dig himself to outside artists in whom he had an interest. Wow, that is a low blow. Yes, <laughs> times were getting really tough at that point. I recorded it, a drowsy Paul says, because I liked it. <laughs> Contemporary reviews. In his 1969 review of Abbey Road for Rolling Stone, John Mendelssohn wrote, Paul McCartney and Ray Davies are the only two writers in rock and roll who could have written Maxwell's Silver Hammer, a jaunty vaudeville in music hallish celebration wherein Paul, in a rare naughty mood, celebrates the joys of being able to bash in the heads of anyone threatening to bring you down. Paul puts it across perfectly with the coyest imaginable choir boy innocence. Writing in Oz magazine, Barry Miles described the song as, quote, a complex little piece and said that aside from McCartney's casual interest in Jerry's work, the only British pop group holding any pataphysical honors are the Soft Machine. Miles said it was a perfect example of Paul's combination of American rock with British brass band music. And I will say that Barry Miles was a close friend of Paul's. They did a lot of hanging out together, and Barry even wrote a biography about Paul McCartney. Derek Jewell of the Sunday Times found the album, quote, refreshingly terse and unpretentious, but lamented the inclusion of Cod 1920s joke, parenthetically Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and Ringo's obligatory nursery arias, Octopus's Garden. In 1974, Robert Criscow referred to Maxwell's silver hammer as a McCartney crotchet. What does that mean? I don't even know. What does a McCartney crotchet mean? No, I have no idea. That's what you're here for. I'm very disappointed right now. <laughs> In the word crotchet. I'm well, no, you're supposed to know every reference. And what's a McCartney crotchet? I don't know what crotchet means. Rachel, can you look it up? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I know crotchety. Yeah, I know crotchety. Maybe it comes from there. Crotchet, origin British music, a note having the time values of a quarter of a whole note or half a half note represented by a large solid dot with a plain stem, a quarter note. Oh, so <laughs> it's it's a three-quarter note. Well, I think, I think that it's actually a uh, metaphor. Like it might mean something like his one note thing that he does. The, you well, know the, what I'm saying? The second this, definition is oh. a perverse or unfounded belief or notion. Okay, there you go. It's, you go. it's sort of like that. It's description made me think of like the one note phrase. Well, I will do my Ringo cartoon giggle that was in the 1966 uh, cartoons. There it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've only ever heard my parents do that so that was fascinating thank you <laughs> retrospective assessments and legacy among Beatles biographers Ian McDonald said that if any single recording shows why the Beatles broke up it's Maxwell Silver Hammer he continued <laughs> <laughs> This ghastly miscalculation of which there are countless equivalents on McCartney's 
garrulous sequence of solo albums represents by far his worst lapse of taste under the auspices of the Beatles. Thus, Abbey Road embraces both extremes of McCartney, the clear-minded, sensitive caretaker of the Beatles in You Never Give Me Your Money and The Long Medley, and the immature egotist who frittered away the group's patience and solidarity on sniggering nonsense like this. <laughs> wow, ouch. <laughs> Author Jonathan Gold cites Maxwell's Silver Hammer as an example of the selfishness inherent in the Beatles' creative partnership, whereby a composition by McCartney or Lennon would be given preference over a more substantial song by Harrison. He also rues McCartney's penchant for a light entertainment style that the Beatles had sought to render obsolete and concludes, The sorriest aspect of Maxwell's Silver Hammer is thus the way it demonstrates how Paul's workmanlike tendency to build on his past successes had caused him to translate the genuinely charming novelty and subversive parody of When I'm 64 into a personal subgenre of glibly clever songs that had devolved in the two years since Sgt. Pepper into a form of musical shtick. Well, I will tell you that the Beatles practiced on George's All Things Must Pass, and they passed on that. And so certainly what Jonathan is saying is true. The power of McCartney kept Maxwell's silver hammer alive. <laughs> well, I don't always advocate for blatant selfishness, but in this case, Paul, it's okay. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so says Rachel. In 2009, Pop Matters editor John Bergstrom concluded his list, quote, the worst of the Beatles with the song. He said that while McCartney had previously created some borderline schmaltzy music hall inspired songs, Maxwell's Silver Hammer was where even the secret admirer of Rocky Raccoon must draw the line. Bergstrom described it as unnervingly cute, unrelenting, obnoxious, too literal-minded by half, and the single Beatles song out of nearly 200 that is basically unlistenable. Actually, 214. But, you know, I love all Beatles songs, but I wouldn't call Maxwell's Silver Hammer in my top 50, 75, 100. Gotcha. It would have to be in my top 50, because I couldn't name 50 Beatles songs, so... <laughs> Victor... What? This will go on until you name at least 50 Beatles songs. Please begin. I'm so sorry. We have more to read. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, overruled. Thank you. <laughs> Cover versions. In 1972, the Canadian band The Bells covered Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Their version became a hit in Canada. It reached number 83 on the pop chart and number two on the Canadian adult contemporary chart. Holy cow. Nine, number 83 is considered a hit. Okay. Two I get, but 83. In the 1978 film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the song is performed by comedian Steve Martin, who portrays the character Maxwell Edison. Frankie Lane also covered the song as part of the musical documentary All This in World War II, which featured stock and newsreel footage of the Second World War set to performances of music by the Beatles. I had no idea. That's that's cool. Yes, well, if you can get through the the movie, Sgt. Pepper's Only House Club Band, <laughs> you will find Steve Martin is, in fact, in there as Maxwell Edison. I've slept through it at least twice. You are perhaps not the only one. The Mona Lisa twins covered Maxwell's Silver Hammer with a 2015 video published on YouTube Music 
in 2015. Citation needed. <laughs> I exactly. I do need the citation on that one. Thank you. Personnel. According to Ian McDonald, Andy Babuke, who I met at uh, at a wedding of a mutual friend, actually, Mark Lewison, and Jean Michel Gouzdon, and Philippe Mogotin. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the Beatles. Paul McCartney, lead and backing vocals, piano, electric guitars, Moog synthesizer. George Harrison, backing vocal, acoustic, and lead guitar, bass. Ringo Starr. Backing vocal drums. <laughs> yeah. Additional musicians: George Martin, organ. Mal Evans is seen hitting the anvil in the Let It Be film. In his description of the subsequent recording for Abbey Road, Emmerich said that Starr simply didn't have the strength to lift the hammer. So Evans did the anvil hits, although he did not have a drummer's sense of timing. McDonald also credits Evans as providing the hits. Authors Felipe Margotin and Jean-Michel Guidson are non-committal, citing either Evans or Starr as the performer. Lewison lists Starr as the performer of the Anvil hits during the studio session on the 10th of July. All right. Well, I guess we'll never know exactly who is hitting that hammer. I will tell you that it is Mal Evans on the recording. Oh, really? How do you yeah. know? Just from my years of experience, yes. Ringo did do it on the 10th, but for the most part, it was all Mal Evans. Because Ringo was on the drums, you see. Right on. That was great. Well, I enjoy Mark Maxwell's Silver Hammer on occasion. I don't think it should have been on Abbey Road, but nonetheless, there it is. Historic, <laughs> nonetheless. It belongs there. It's its destiny. Yes, it does belong there. Although other songs that the Beatles were practicing by Paul, like Teddy Boy and some of his other sweet schmaltzy songs are on his solo albums. Thank God for that. This has been the Wikipedia page for Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Thanks for listening to Wikilisten. You can find us at wikilisten.com and on all social media at Wikilisten, except for Twitter, which is at wiki underscore listen. If there is a page that you would like us to read, please let us know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 